is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. right here on the Church for the Rest of Us podcast with Family Church Lead Pastor Jimmy Scroggins. Before we get to today's topic, let me remind our listeners that we are offering an early bird special for our Sharper 2018 conference here in West Palm Beach, Florida. The conference is on March 1st, 2018, and we hope that you'll be able to join us. I would say that probably one of the best places to be in all of the country, Jimmy. Can't beat it. South Florida. I mean, the sun what, what will be the, shining. You can eat outside, brother. What will the temperature be? It's going to be in the 70s for sure. Well, it's it's definitely, uh, you know, going to be a great conference. It's a conference that we had this past year. We want to allow people to come, pastors to come, bring their entire staff. And so we're really looking forward to it. And this year we're going to be talking about what it looks like to get unstuck. A lot yeah. of a lot of pastors around the country feel stuck, and we're going to be talking about that. And so speaking of being stuck, we're back on our third and final episode of the series of Transitioning Your Traditional Church. We've talked about how uh, to start. Uh, where you are currently and how to kill the sacred cows. And today we're going to be talking about how to set a trajectory for your future. Jimmy, a few years ago when I was working on my PhD and writing my dissertation, I I actually wrote about a gentleman by the name of John Engel James from Birmingham, England. He actually, as a young man, became the pastor of Carves Lane Church. And it was wonderful because when he started his ministry there, there were about 70 people the first Sunday that he preached, and he was really excited. In fact, he wrote in his diary that after he preached, he felt like he was speaking to the assembling of the ancients. So, you know, um, <laughs> I had, know the feeling he, he had a lot. It was like being at the uh, senior, yeah. you know, being at the nursing home with, with the senior adults. Sure. And then the second thing that he said after his church experienced incredible growth because there were pastors coming and wanting to learn from him because he took his church from about 70, 75 people in 10 years to over 2,000. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, especially back then, there were no mega churches. That was like one of the most, that was probably one of the largest churches in the world at the time. It it was amazing. And the the amazing thing, after he was going through all of that, he, he referred back to that time. He said that this was a time in my ministry that was like plowing on a rock. So this guy remembers that, you know, right. those hard, hard. So a lot, you know, a lot of guys can probably feel like that and can relate to that because they feel no like question. their ministry is actually plowing on a rock. And so it can be tough. It can be difficult. Well, I'd say most pastors, when they go to a church, especially if it's a smaller church or a rural church, a traditional church, when you show up at that church, you probably are preaching to the assembly of the ancients. I mean, it probably is an older church because even if it's a healthy church, when a church has a pastor over decades and that guy grows up with the congregation of that church, by the time he leaves, he's likely to have a church that looks a lot like him. I mean, we've done some partnerships with some churches, and what we found is guys who started pastoring churches in their late 20s or early 30s, if they stay there for 20 years or 30 years, pretty soon the people they started that church with who love them the most and know them the best are the same age there. They're 60 years old too. And so it's not that unusual in the life cycle of a church. But honestly, when you show up at a new church and you look out there at the assembly of the ancients and you realize you're spending a lot of time plowing on a rock— 
even if that is something you're willing to do, and I hope it is, you've got to find a way to move forward. You've got to set a trajectory for the future. Now, I used to go to conferences and read books and listen to all these speakers, and they would tell me, you got to have this strategic plan. you got to have a strategic plan. I've even gone to seminars where they and brought in consultants where they helped us develop a strategic plan with objectives and measurables and timelines. That was very valuable as an exercise. But to be totally honest with you, what I've discovered in this day and age, especially in the church environment we're living in in South Florida, a strategic plan only has value in that at least it helps me point a direction. But I know for a fact that the dynamic environment is going to be so different 12 months from now or 24 months from now or 36 months from now that whatever plan I come up with today is going to be irrelevant. Right. right. So I don't really even like to talk about developing a plan as if it's a step-by-step, play-by-play, you know, plan of attack. I like to talk about our trajectory. This is the direction that we're going. This is the goal. This is the the stream that we're trying to swim in. And then we're going to have to adapt our plans almost on the fly as the situation changes. Because, Steve, you've been here for five years. Well, every year, at the end of the year, we build next Mm -hmm. year's budget. We start building it in June. We have it built by October, November, our church votes to approve it and we begin our budget calendar year at on January the 1st every single year well before six months of that budget is spent every single year since you've been here there's been incredible opportunities or things change so fast we had to completely obliterate the budget that we had hire different people acquire a campus borrow money pay off debt and we've been doing this so to me, setting the trajectory is crucial. And you know, I'm, I'm, a lot of people ask me, well, Pastor, what is the plan oh, yeah. to get there? And I always say, hey, 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 I don't have a plan. <laughs> I have an idea. Right. I don't have a step-by-step. I've got a trajectory. So let's start working towards this together. And then thank God that he's put people like you, Steve, who are so good at putting taking an idea or trajectory, and then helping us build an infrastructure to actually move that direction. Well, if you can if you can build a plan that you can actually uh, be massaging along the way, yeah. it certainly helps. And Jimmy, you use the, the language a lot about building a bridge as you're going across That's it. Right. So, you know, it, it does feel like that a lot of times. I'd like for us to get practical just for a moment and talk to us about setting a trajectory. So for the average pastor that's out there, what, what does that actually look like for him? Well, I talk to a lot of pastors who who call me and they say, Jimmy, look, we need to change our church, but I'm I'm kind of stuck. I don't even know what I should be thinking. I wanna I wanna be godly and spiritual and pastoral in the way that I treat the people that we have, but we've got to move into a future. How can I do it? And I always start off when I came to, to First Baptist Church at West Palm Beach, I just made it my mind. I've got little kids. I was a relatively young man in my mid-30s, and I just said, look, I'm going to make First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach the kind of church that the Scroggins family wants to go to. Mm, so we're going to have the kind of kids ministry that the Scroggins ministry, I, I want them to have as a, a lot father. Of those kids. We're going to have, yeah, we're going <laughs> to, I'm going to fill it up for them. Too. We're going to have, we're going to have a student ministry that I want my kids to grow up in. We're going to have church service with music that I enjoy singing. And then I'm excited to preach. And when we're done singing, I'm going to try to create a staff that I enjoy working with every day. And we're not going to do it all in one day, but I'm going to try to build a church that the Scroggins family would like to go to because I just believe we have enough in common with the other families in our community that if it's a church the Scroggins family would like to go to and we find it attractive and helpful and encouraging and it builds us up, then it will be attractive, helpful, and encouraging and build others up as well. So that's one thing. The other thing is I think every church has to have an it 
Every church has to have an it. Every church has got to say, there's a reason why this church exists in this moment, in this community. We are doing something special that other churches in our community are not going to be able to do at least not the way that we're doing it. Whether that, if your church is, if your church's it is racial reconciliation, then that's your it. And that's what you drive. And that's what you hang your hat on. And you preach it to your congregation. It begins to ooze out of people's pores that we see racial reconciliation in this turbulent time as a, as a, just a, a necessary application of the gospel in our community. Or maybe it's church planting. Maybe your church is just a church planting church, church planting church, mm-hmm. church planting church. That's kind of our it. We right. said right. seven years ago, we're going to plant a hundred churches in South Florida and reach every neighborhood with the gospel. So we've been we've been pounding that and pounding that. That's all right. I know other churches, there it is uh, global missions. And so they do global missions. I know other churches, it's adoption and foster mm-hmm. care. And that's kind of what they hang their head on. Now, all of us dabble in all of it. Right. But every church has got to have an it. And that's how you set your trajectory. The pastor has to get up and say, the reason this church needs to exist along with all the other churches in our neighborhood, and along with all the other churches in our city, our community, is because God has called us to do this thing. This is the trajectory that we're on. It's unique, it's different, and it sets us apart, and it's what drives us. And I think pastors that fail to do that and just try to have a general, nice church ministry are likely to have exactly what they're looking for, a general, nice little church ministry because vision is what attracts people. Vision is what gets the leadership up in the morning. Vision attracts money. Vision is what gets people excited. And if you can show them that this isn't a vision to build my personal brand as the pastor or the name of our church, but this is a vision that flows directly from the gospel into our community, then people can get excited about it. Every pastor has got to define that. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, you know, having having the it also lets you say no to a lot of things just right off the bat. You already know what the other things that you're not really running after. And I know when you got here, one of the things that you had to do right off the bat, you had to say no a lot. That's right. So, well, I think just, you know, when we came here, we had a medical clinic and we had a pregnancy center and we had a maternity home. Our church had a restaurant. We've talked about some of these things in previous episodes and we had to stop doing those things so that we could clear the decks in order to have energy and resources to push forward. Now, one of the things, Steve, that I think keeps people from actually doing this is people don't understand how their organization actually works. And so they come to their church, they're the pastor, they're the leader, but they don't know how the organization works. And even though the church is the greatest grassroots organization in the world for advancing values and advancing the gospel, people don't understand how their organization works. So one of the things that I would encourage pastors to do, if you're at a church that needs to change, the number one thing you need to do is you need to become the expert in your church on your church bylaws. Now, I know you thought I was about to say become the greatest prayer warrior and the greatest faster and the greatest Bible student. Do all of that. But while you're doing it, become the resident expert on your bylaws. The bylaws of your church define legally who can actually make decisions, uh, how those decisions are made, and how those decisions are funded. And until you know who can make the decision, how the decision can be made, and how the decisions can be funded, you really are going to be stuck forever. And people will bully you using Robert's Rules of Order and business meetings and committee meetings, and they'll just blockade you and keep you from moving your church forward. Become an expert on your bylaws. I've had this many times. I've been in meetings, and people have come to me and said, 
Oh, pastor, if you do that, it's a violation of our bylaws. And because I became an expert on our church's bylaws before I even moved here, I was able to look him in the eye and say, oh, no, it isn't. Right. This is exactly what the bylaw. Now this, well, we always do that. Yeah, well, you've always done that, but that wasn't correct. What the bylaws say is we're going to do it this way. And that gives you authority. And that's really, really important. I know it sounds secular, but it's it's really, it's really crucial. Jimmy, one of the things that you walked in, you, the, actually the church was a little bit discouraged, demoralized. They, they had been, they had suffered a lot of losses as the wide world of sports would say, they had tasted the agony yeah, of defeat, right. right? They fell down the mountain. And so one of the things that you had to do as a leader that I just thought was pretty strategic in setting the trajectory is you really helped this congregation and the staff internally celebrate some small wins. You yeah, felt like that vital. was really important. Well, if you're going to set a trajectory and you're going to say, this is where we're going, you're going to have to show very quickly to your leadership team and to your congregation that you are actually moving the church towards that trajectory. And that's what small wins do. So Bob Record said to me, I think I've said this on a previous episode, Bob Record said to me when I first came to First Baptist, he said, look, don't overestimate what you can do in one year, but don't underestimate what you can do in 10 years. And that's the value of a trajectory. We're moving this direction. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take. I don't know exactly what it's going to take to get there, but we're going to do it. We're going to keep moving. And defining small wins is vital. So like if you come to your congregation, you go, hey, this Easter, we had 300 people at our Easter Mm -hmm. service. Well, next year, we're going to try to have 400. Okay, well, you may or may not reach that. But if you can just just get a little win under your belt and just so you can be able to say, hey, man, last year we only had 300 people. But this year, let's say you don't get to 400. You only get to 335. Still, last year we had 300. This year we had 335. That's a 10% increase over last year. Giving is a good example. Mm -hmm. Adding new leadership is a good example. Winning people to Christ. Baptizing people is a good example. Taking somebody on a great mission trip and let them have a great experience. There's so many easy ways to create wins that don't really cost a lot of money. And if you're going to move your church forward in trajectory, you're going to have to show people that you are making progress. And that's what small wins do. Well, Jimmy, one of the ways that you do that with our staff, I mean, this this is really practical. I mean, you begin every meeting that I've ever observed in the last five years with stories. Well, that's so, right. So you, you're always asking for wins, and then you're kind of sending a message to your staff what are a priority for you because you're celebrating those wins. That's right. And you know as well as I do, like if I start a staff meeting, we're going to spend 30 minutes going, hey, tell me something great that happened over the weekend. Well, if our staff, we're paying these people a lot of money, and they're sitting around this table – And if I can't get somebody to tell me something great that happened over the weekend, we've got a serious problem. So I want our staff to not only be doing great things that move our church toward the trajectory that God is setting for us, I want them to be identifying the small wins in the stories when they see them. When they see something great, I want them to go, oh, I better remember that one. Because when Jimmy asked Stephanie, that's the kind of thing I need to be sharing. And that is part of the way you keep people energized. Well, you keep them energized, but you also, from a leadership perspective, you this is how you say this is the priority. That's right. And it's a, you're able to say our system, our drive, our prayers, our our trajectory setting is working yeah. and people can feel it and taste it and breathe it. We're moving forward. That's what these kind of wins do for us. Well, Jimmy, one of the things that I love, I mean, it, this is actually visually when you arrived our church on a Sunday morning to worship, you, you actually see what God is doing. And yeah, I, that's you right. Know, when I first got here, it wasn't the case. But now when you come to worship at Family Church, I mean, there's over 60 nations worshiping with us. No question Sunday. about it. And so you see that we've moved from a church that was 
pasty white to a church that's really celebrating all of the nations worshiping the Lord. So we've really become a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-site church, and you're just seeing God at work. And it's it's really incredible because you think about our history. We're a 116-year-old traditional steeple and columns church. And so moving from that to what we are today, it's really amazing. Some people have said, and it's obviously the case, I mean, it's it's easier to turn a dinghy than it is a cruise ship. I was wondering if you could give us some actual practical example, a couple of examples maybe of how this actually fleshed out. Well, at Family Church, you know, one of the things we did was we tried to make our leadership team look like the community where we live. So traditionally, First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, it's in South Florida, people around the country, especially from the Bible Belt, would retire to South Florida. And then they would come to South Florida. When they get here, there's a lot of Jewish people. There's a lot of Hispanic people. There's a lot of Caribbean American blacks. There's all these different nations and races. And it's a it's a real melting pot and it's highly integrated. Well, they would come to this community to live because of the weather. But on Sunday mornings, they would retreat to their downtown Baptist church so that they could actually get away from the community right. where they had retired. and remember what it was like where they came from. And there's a lot of downtown First Baptist churches around the Bible Belt that are still kind of that haven from the modern kind of cultural milieu. And so people try to escape it by going to church. Well, we decided to change that by making our church ministry staff look like our community instead of making our church ministry staff look like our congregation. Okay. And so uh, for the first time, our senior staff positions at First Baptist West Palm began to be filled by people that were not English speaking Anglo. And so the first most visible one is we hired Christian Ramos to be our to be our worship pastor. Christian Ramos grew up in Puerto Rico. So Puerto Ricans are Americans, but they're American citizens, but still he grew up in Puerto Rico. Spanish is his first language heavily accented. Obviously he has a Hispanic, Hispanic features. And so, and besides that, he's like six foot seven. So I hired the tallest Puerto Rican worship leader in the world, you know, and he stands up there and he's, he stands up there. He's a handsome guy. He's really, you know, nice really pays a lot. Of, oh, his hair is incredible. He pays a lot of attention to his hair yeah. and his clothes as all worship guys do. So he was up there on the platform. Well, What happens when you start doing that? That sends a message to your community. It sends a message to the Anglos in your congregation that if you want to be here without being around those people, this is not the church for you. But it also sends a message to Hispanics and people who have biracial marriages and people who have family members that are Hispanic. Wow. So we actually are welcome here. There's somebody that looks like me on the platform. We brought on Eric Kelly, African-American pastor. He's a bivocational pastor. He preaches regularly at our church, leads regularly, trains our residents. And that's so vital because we want to send a message to uh, African-Americans in West Palm Beach that there are leaders here that look like you and that have lived out some of the same things that you've lived through in terms of your story. We had the first African-American chairman of deacons last Mm -hmm. year and uh, Barry Williams came and became our chairman of deacons. So just trying to, you know, our children's ministers, uh, one of our children's pastors is Cuban and the assistant children's minister is Dominican. And this is just the way that we kind of roll. And at every single campus, we have a multicultural staff. 
Well, Jimmy, you know, that's that's a very practical, very classic example. And I'm glad that you shared that. You know, I, I think a lot of people are out there trying to transition their church, but, you know, really getting your mind around how complex the church actually is. I mean, it, it's really difficult. I mean, I know you've heard this from time to time. Businessmen have asked me, Steve, if you weren't a pastor and you if you were working in the real world, what would you do? And then, of course, a lot of these businessmen retire or leave the secular workforce and come work at a church. And some of them only last a few months. I mean, because they find out, wow, you actually are in the real world. And so, you know, it, 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 it is difficult and it is challenging. And so I was just wondering in the, in the midst of the challenge, in the midst of the grind, in the midst of things being just very difficult from time to time, I, I like to say the good news is you're dealing with people, right? The bad news is of course. you're dealing with people. Yeah. So we deal with a lot of people. What are the things that keep you motivated and what are the things that keep you uh, going forward? Well, really, there's only two things that keep me motivated. One of them is the people themselves keep me motivated because I see the brokenness. I see the potential. I see the love. I see the giftedness of people and I want to help them be everything that they can be for the Lord Jesus. The second thing that keeps me motivated is the gospel. And so there's some combination always of the gospel keeps me motivated, the message of the gospel, and the people themselves keep me motivated. So sometimes I stand up to preach and I'm like, my gosh, I've preached to these same people like hundreds and hundreds of times. Then I've got to get motivated by the message that flows from the gospel. And sometimes, honestly, my gosh, I've preached through the book of Matthew four times. I've and I've, you know, like <laughs> yeah, Easter Sunday, yeah. how many times? Hey, he rose again, again. Right. right? right. So you're going to have to get motivated. You look at it in the eyes of the people, though, and think, man, these people a lot need of pain. these people need the message of the resurrection. Right. It's got to motivate you. But I, I remember when I was in seminary, Bob Tebow is a missionary to the Philippines, and I went on a trip with him when I was in my young twenties. And he just thought I was young. I was single at the time, so he didn't care if I got killed or eaten or whatever. So he put me on this trip and he put me on a bus and we rode like for two days on this bus and then I got off the bus and then he put me in a Jeep and we rode around this Jeep and then they put me on a motorcycle and we rode up this mountain on a motorcycle because the Jeep couldn't go up the road and then we got off the motorcycle because we had to cross a river and the river was too dangerous and so we had to ride a carabao which is like a gigantic ox across this. <laughs> you didn't think you were ever going to no, get there. We rode across this river and then we had to walk up this hill and finally got to this little village up there. And they told me, they said, when you get to this village, there's no church up here and no American has ever been up here before. And a lot of these people have never even heard of Jesus. They practice animistic religions and they're going to be nice, but they haven't seen anybody like you or heard this message that you're going to share with them. And I walked into the village. And when you go to a village in the Philippines, you have to go see a guy. He's called the Barungai captain, kind of like the village elder. And you go see the Barungai captain. And I went and he knew I was coming somehow. And he comes and meets me at the edge of the village. And he says, hi, I'm so-and-so. Welcome to our village. And he hands me an ice cold Coca-Cola. Wow. And I got this Coca-Cola and it just struck me. That no American had ever world. been up there, no yeah. preacher had been ever up, ever been up there. There's no there's no church up there, but somehow the Coca Cola Corporation had figured out how to get Coca Cola to the top of this mountain. And I thought, you know what? If Coca Cola executives and the Coca Cola organization will figure out how to get this bottle of liquid that is bad for you right. to the top of this mountain, and their only motivation is money. Right. Their only motivation is to increase the, sh the, the value of, of shares of their stock. 
then what are we as Christians doing? We've got to work harder than the executives at Coca-Cola. The, the, the imperishable reward of heaven and the imperishable product of the gospel has got to drive us to work harder than any corporation on the planet. So whatever we're doing, whether we're bivocational, whether we're fully, vo- fully vocational, and this is our only job in the ministry, we've got to give it everything we've got because the gospel's worth it and the people are worth it. And we should never let the Coca-Cola Corporation work harder or smarter than the Jesus people. Well, Jimmy, you know this. I mean, we, we've actually got good news to share. And I mean, the, the passion that drives us in the midst of all of the things that we're transitioning, I mean, it, it is the power of the gospel. And Jimmy, next week, as we talk about transition, and we've had this conversation over the last three episodes, we're going to be talking about something that I think you had to transition here. And yeah, you, you've got a deal. Little, yeah, you've got some personal experience. Yeah, I don't want to unpack it all today because we're wrapping this up and want, them to, want our listeners to hear us next week. But we're going to unpack this on the next episode. One of the biggest changes that I had to manage here was to change the name of our church. We changed our name from the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach to Family Church. And I want to talk to you about it in the next episode and how we came up with that name and how we changed the name. And the title of the next week's podcast is Your Church's Name is Killing You change it. It's something that strikes a chord every time I talk about it. I want you to be a part of it, and I want you to be a part of making your church more relevant to your community. So I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for being a part of the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or Check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you too. Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins, and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.